Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTS Net to Go. We hope you enjoy. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, as the case may be, depending on where you're joining us from around the world today. My name is Emily Farkas. I'm a cardiac surgeon on behalf of CTS Net, and here to welcome you uh, and thank you for joining us for CTS Net Live from Africa. It's my honor to be joined by an exceptionally distinguished panel of colleagues today. And we'd like to uh, have them introduce themselves, but I'd just first like to go over a few issues with the webinar. First, if you have any questions that you'd like to send our way, please feel free to do so. We'll try to address those uh, toward the end and get to as many as we can. I'd also like to point out that there's a live Twitter feed uh, that's going in parallel. And if you feel that you uh, would like to tweet any threads or any points or comments that resonate with you, please feel free to do that and use the hashtag CTSNetLive. One last uh, thing I'd like to point out before we meet our guest is that Dr. Janabi from uh, the Jakaya Kikwedi Cardiac Center in Tanzania sends his regrets that he was feeling unwell this morning and didn't feel like he could attend. He was very kind to send some responses to the questions that I asked him, and we will share some of those responses, and we send him our best wishes uh, for feeling better soon. Again, thank you and welcome. I'd like to ask uh, each of our guests to introduce themselves, starting with Dr. Zilla. Uh, I'm Peter Zilla. I'm the head of cardiac surgery in Cape Town at the University of Cape Town at uh, the Grotescue Hospital and the Children's Hospital. Dr. Salvati. You're still on mute, Alessandro. I'm Alessandro Salvati. I'm a cardiac surgeon in Italian, cardiac surgeon, but I'm working here in Sudan, Khartoum, from 2009. Cardiac surgeon and medical coordinator of the Salam Center for Cardiac Surgery. Thank you. Dr. Pompeo. Dr. Could you just kindly introduce yourselves to our audience? Okay, if it's, uh, yes, me. Uh, I'm Juha Puntila. I'm a pediatric cardiac uh, surgeon from Helsinki University, pediatric uh, hospital or children's hospital. I have been going also to Sudan from uh, 2009, doing two to six months per year there as a congenital, congenital cardiac surgeon. And uh, I am leading with uh, Dr. Salvati, the pediatric program there in Khartoum, Sudan. Great. And Dr. Falasay. Yeah, um, my name is Mbode Falasay. I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon. I practice at the um, Lagos State University Teaching Hospital here in Lagos, Nigeria. 
Wonderful. Well, we certainly appreciate your involvement today during this busy time as Africa passes 54,000 cases, as noted this morning on the Africa CDC website. So most African countries seem to be moving from readiness to response. Those latest statistics this morning, May 8th, suggested that there were uh, 54,000 cases, as I mentioned, and 2,074 deaths. And that's an increase of 42% in reported cases and 25% deaths from the previous week. I'd like to understand a little bit about the situation in each of your countries. Dr. Zilla, South Africa certainly has the highest concentration uh, on the continent and a bigger concentration in the Western Cape. Can you tell me a little bit about what that's been like at the University of Cape Town? Emily, we have a situation which we also still grapple to understand. We, have, we are in the seventh week now of a complete lockdown of the entire country. And we should have seen an exponential growth much earlier so we can always say that the lockdown was very successful. But yet we have a few thousand patients already uh, in the Western Cape alone. And we stopped elective surgery seven weeks ago. Uh, and we haven't really seen the patients coming through in the numbers in which we would have expected it. So we understand that we needed time on the side of the medical system to get geared for everything. But uh, we started um, operating patients, at least uh, urgent patients again, on the non-COVID side um, about 10, 15 days ago, because our ICUs had several ICU beds unfilled and the situation hasn't changed yet. So you found that people are staying at home basically is, is the theory and too afraid to come to the hospital to be treated, is that? It's very difficult because on the one hand, if I talk to my colleagues in Italy, in New York, everyone observed the same that uh, the number of cardiac emergencies has gone dramatically down and eventually they will come through. Uh, we communicated with colleagues yesterday in China in, uh, and, and they said they saw the same during the acute phase. And now after the lockdown, all these cardiac patients sort of bounce back. So what we all need to do is we need to prepare ourselves for a massive rebound of the non-COVID patients once the lockdown is over. I agree with that. We're seeing the same in the United States. Dr. Falache, some may not realize that Nigeria is the most populous country on the African continent and that Lagos is the most populous city on the entire African continent. Have you seen this reflected in the general census at your university, Lagos State University Teaching Hospital? Well, interestingly, the approach has been similar to what um, Peter described in South Africa. We've been on lockdown here now for over six weeks officially, probably a week longer than that um, unofficially. There has been a concern that um, the medical infrastructure is probably not geared up towards being able to handle the kind of um, patient load of COVID that you guys have seen in the Western world.
So I think the response here has been more of um, being proactive in terms of locking things down and keeping people at home. And as Peter said, we've seen a similar situation where because of the lockdown, um, the end, the outcome in terms of have there been any deaths in terms of people dying. But apart from the announced deaths of the COVID patients, which the Nigerian Center for Disease Control keeps a track of, there hasn't been a deluge of people dying or anything. So in many ways, it's kind of two things. People think, oh, is this a false alarm? Even though the government says everyone should stay at home. On the other hand, we're thinking, hang on, this is obviously working. So actually right now, the government's now, at least here where I'm in Lagos, is now trying a phased approach of probably beginning to ease the lockdown restrictions. We just started this week. So we've just, um, we just started this week um, slightly easing, easing the restrictions. Obviously keeping an eye on the numbers, if there's a rebound, then they'll go back down again. But we haven't seen a huge influx of, of our cases. Apart from that, um, in the main hospitals, we've all been advised to, to only um, emergency cases. So, so we're not doing any um, electives unless they're really, really urgent. Okay, thank you. And to let our audience know about the Salam Center in Sudan, which many may not have heard of, it's a hospital outside of Khartoum that provides uh, heart surgery for patients from 28 countries uh, in Africa and outside. And it's primarily operated by the Italian charity Emergency International. Dr. Silvati, as the medical director, what changes have you put in place in preparation for a potential surge of COVID patients? So I need to say that uh, before the declaration of pandemic problem, some centers, so emergency, already started to apply some rules. Because uh, we were working in the past, in 2014-15, with the Ebola problem in Sierra Leone. So we were uh, we were running hospital in Sierra Leone with Ebola. So we know what what is what would be the problem with the, this uh, virus uh, infection by COVID. So this is the reason because from the beginning, at the beginning of January, we start to improve ourselves about, uh, first of all, increasing material for protection, for full PP, increase the number of masks, increase the number of uh, disposable gowns. We started with the filter, second triage filter outside of the hospital to understand what was the suspected case or not. We started to teach to the national staff uh, to which way to uh, dress in the right way, to hand washing, uh, to put the gloves, to put the mask, uh, filter mask, when and where. Uh, so from the beginning, we apply this basic rule. We provide for all our staff surgical mask. Uh, it was mandatory for all our staff in all the department to put on gloves and surgical mask. Also for the patients coming from out of the hospital and from the staff and non-medical staff. In, from that moment, all the people that are coming inside the hospital was mandatory for them to dress with mask and the wash and, and the social distance. This one was the first thing that we did from the beginning, from the beginning of January. Because for us, for, for, for emergency, was always like this, this is the principle. All the people could be positive. We need to consider ourselves positive for COVID. 
and not wait just as work. This is what's the best from the beginning. That's interesting. Emergency International, as you mentioned, had a lot to pull from and experience from both Sierra Leone and Italy in advance of what's happened in, in Africa. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. So despite the different levels of infrastructure that exist between all of your centers, cardiac surgery in general raises the level of care available at any institution because of the um, training, the personnel, the resources that it requires. The media has been focused a lot on a concern for a lack of critical care capacity across Africa. Could each of you comment on the ICU capacity at your facility before COVID started and how that compares to the rest of your country? Talking about the Salam Center, could we hear from you, Dr. Puntia? Yes. Uh, yeah, first some general information uh, sharing that Sudan is a 40 million uh, population country with uh, 8 million living uh, there around Khartoum area. And uh, from uh, local healthcare authorities, uh, there is uh, around 80 ICU beds available, uh, out of which uh, 60 to 70 is uh, equipped with, uh, with uh, mechanical ventilators. Uh, our hospital was specifically designed and uh, built for a cardiac surgery hospital with 15 ICU beds and two uh, isolation rooms. Uh, our staff is also specialized in cardiac surgery activities. So we are doing all possible to be able to continue our cardiac uh, surgery program despite the COVID-19 outbreak. And at the same time, we will be available to help and, and uh, consult uh, the local health authorities in form of uh, advice and sharing knowledge. For now, in accordance with uh, authorities, we are going on with our cardiac uh, surgery uh, in cardiac surgery center, just to cardiac surgery. Uh, we try to provide high quality tertiary level treatment for cardiac surgery patients. And this is totally free of charge uh, for the patient, even the travel and, and all the cost. But I think uh, maybe Alessandro already mentioned uh, for now, because of this outbreak uh, and lockdown, uh, our, uh, this uh, regional program is totally freezed, let's say. So patients cannot come nor leave the country. And uh, there is a patients at least from five to nine different uh, countries waiting just to get home, totally cured already. That's interesting. I want to talk more about that because it's a big part of your center is to bring in regional patients from outside the borders. Uh, Dr. Zilla, could you tell us a little bit about your ICU capacity before COVID? Yeah, one needs to see it against the, the background of South Africa having the highest Gini coefficient in the world. And that means we are a very, very split society with uh, 45 cardiac surgeries for 11 millions. And we provide in six teaching hospitals cardiac surgery for the remaining 55 million. So this is, this is the starting situation, but nevertheless, we have particularly in the Western Cape here, 
we have a very a very good situation and out of the approximately 1400 ICU beds we still have more than 500 in the public sector so if you just look at our big teaching hospital we have about 110 112 ICU beds uh, normally available and uh, at that stage of uh, COVID we have one dedicated uh, COVID ICU and fortunately didn't have a situation yet where we had to decide what to do with uh, COVID positive cardiac patients. So, so far we had not one positive cardiac patient and we continue treating them in our ICU. But what we have introduced is a compulsory uh, pre-operative testing and if possible at all, we, we wait for the two or three days it takes to get the test results back before we operate on someone. Sure, okay. Well, Dr. Fellashade, can you just tell me a little bit about the ICU capacity before COVID at La Suth? Yeah, um, I need to give, make, a, uh, make a bit of a clarification. We haven't been involved directly in um, looking after our patients because the Nigerian Center for Disease Control has um, taken charge of everything. So what we have is uh, we have various Lagos here. We have um, five different um, what's called um, isolation centers. So some of these centers also have ICU beds and ventilators. So the capacity nationally, both public and private, for cases that have um, ICU beds, I would say it's about. Um, between the public and private, about 400 beds. In our place in um, Lassus, probably about 50 beds. But those 30 beds are not being used at the moment actively for any um, COVID patients. What's happening is, as I said earlier, we've stopped um, elective work, only doing emergency work. So yeah. the government's trying to um, put, make sure that everything is focused in one place or in various um, isolation centers where they can have the um, expertise. But from what we've heard, even in these asking centers, there are not that um, many patients requiring um, ventilation or anything. Okay. Thank you. Um, just to complete the snapshot in each of your regions, I want to understand a little bit more about the government restrictions, although you, you've all mentioned some of them. Um, perhaps I'll just add uh, Dr. Janabi's response in Tanzania. I don't know if anyone was aware that the media was, at least in the United States, focused a lot of attention on the fact that the Tanzanian government was uh, either encouraging or at least endorsing people to gather in large groups to, um, to worship at mosques and churches to pray for the uh, relief from coronavirus. And when I asked Dr. Janabi if that was just inflammatory media, which it commonly is, uh, he, he commented that the government, as well as religious leaders, encouraged people to pray on top of the other measures of personal hygiene, social distancing, etc. I practice cardiology, but I pray too to Allah to help with Corona. So I think that's a very fitting um, statement and hopefully it uh, dispels some of the media inflammation, like I said, that provides a snapshot of the country that's not accurate. Dr. Falashe, the director of the African CDC states that many African communities are incapable of implementing social and physical distance measures in the slum cities, for instance, where the physical space can't be 
expanded and there's little or no access to clean water. I think Dr. Janabi's point and this statement highlight that the regulations and restrictions have to be contextualized to the culture and to the sociological circumstances. To your knowledge, are they utilizing the same restrictions in the slum cities in Lagos or the highest population density areas in Lagos? Well, um, certainly from what the government's done, we had, at least here in, here in Lagos, a, a total lockdown for two weeks when nobody was allowed out, nobody was indoors. And certainly some of the concerns that were raised was that even though you have a lockdown, you have areas of different population density. So it is very likely that in areas of high density, you may have um, five people in a room, 10 people in a room. So in terms of social distancing, you can't really enforce social distancing where you have very high population density. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, they've tried the lockdown thing. I think it has worked, it is working, but it has its um, limitations, which you just pointed out. So we have very high dense, highly dense population. You can't entirely um, guarantee social distancing. But on the flip side, it is um, with the lockdown, despite the people being very close packed together in some areas, we haven't seen a huge um, skyrocketing of infections, which is, um, fingers crossed, we hope to is a very hopeful, hopeful sign. I agree. Uh, refugee camps, Dr. Silvati, would be a similar situation like those in the uh, Western Sudan Darfur, Darfur region. The options for physical distancing are very limited within those camps. The Salam Center is an enclosed compound, but are you aware of what's happening at those refugee camps as far as uh, government actions to try to uh, create some social distancing or, or physical distancing? The Salam Center is true, is far from uh, Khartoum Center, more or less 20 kilometers. So we are living in a little uh, town that is Sobahila. The problem is in Sudan is divided in different regions, different states, and the local authority decide uh, the kind of, uh, which kind of uh, routes they have to apply. More or less, we, what we can say is, uh, for example, we have a pediatric hospital also in the state of Red Sea in uh, Port Sudan. We have another clinic hospital in uh, Niara, that is another state, and in Mayo Clinic uh, near Khartoum. So when we communicate each other, we know that uh, they try to follow the same line, they lock down, full lockdown now. The problem is uh, one month ago, the lock lockdown was just uh, a curfew, I mean, uh, just a few hours from six in the night till eight in the morning. It's 20 days that they declare full lockdown, but then they change again and they say that is a lockdown from uh, six o'clock in the morning till one o'clock in the afternoon to give time the people to find food, to buy something, to, to work, to survive. Then they rediscuss again. Uh, the problem is this one, that uh, the local authority in, in the different state decide which kind of rule to follow, even if more or less is the same rule, but till now there is not full lockdown. They give time to the people to go around. And this one for sure is uh, it's not easy to reduce uh, the, the spread of the infection, but in the meantime, we need also to understand that the people 
has to survive. Without work, it's a poor people. Without work, uh, no money, no money, it's not possible to find the food. Uh, it's normal. Keep in mind that now is Ramadan period. So they are fasting uh, from five o'clock in the morning till iftar at six o'clock in the afternoon. So uh, it's normal that it's really, really difficult in this country uh, to say full lockdown. It's really it's a difficult situation. Many challenges. Many challenges. You mentioned that South Africa has been on a lockdown for approximately seven weeks and that you've started doing elective surgeries again, but has have the regulations changed in the community as far as that's concerned with the lockdown? Any lessening or, or less intensive regulation? Sorry, the question was for me or for... Yes, please, Dr. Zilla. Just understanding, are the restrictions getting worse or better in South Africa at the moment? Um, we are almost in the same lockdown as we were uh, at the beginning. It has been slightly reduced from level five to four, but uh, in reality, um, it's only for the essential services and particularly people living in, in the townships, uh, a majority of them is not involved in essential services. But Emily, at the moment, uh, we are in the biggest global experiment where we all learn on a daily basis. So we really can't assess uh, where we are going with this. The reality uh, in South Africa is that after seven weeks, given our very crowded conditions in the townships. We should have seen an explosion of cases already uh, in spite of all the attempts uh, to sort of uh, social distancing, and we haven't. So there is either the possibility uh, that it's really because we have young patients or because we have more than 15% of our population on antiretrovirals for HIV or other reasons. But right now, it's a bit early because we saw something similar in Russia where everyone said Russia is different and it's right now exploding. We may just uh, have bought a little bit of time and we see the same explosion in a few weeks' time. But right now, uh, it is surprisingly flat, the curve, given the circumstances under which people live. And it's not likely to be due to a lack of testing because South Africa was actually one of the first and the most uh, comprehensive countries to adapt the testing. Do you think it was mainly because the community health system was so strong from things like HIV that they were able to get into the community for screening? I think this is a, it's a very valid point. Uh, we did have the opportunity to fall back on that system which sort of built up over the last 15 years. And that may have helped in the very beginning to flatten the curve even more. But on the other hand, what you hear from Sudan, what you hear from Nigeria, um, we are obviously all in the same boat so far. Definitely. Uh, staying with you, Dr. Zilla, I want to examine a few specific challenges for each area you mentioned that you uh, have led the Christian Barnard 
Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery at the University of Cape Town for almost 20 years now. It's certainly a storied history there of the first human heart transplant in 1967. You mentioned you're starting elective surgeries back. What has happened with your heart transplant program and where does it stand now? So we need to be careful not to call it elective surgery. So we are at least pushing the boundaries on urgent cases. <clears throat> at the moment, we are all strictly instructed by government not to do any elective surgery. This has also found its way, of course, into transplantation, particularly because these patients would then, on top of everything, be immunocompromised through the therapy. So we are looking after the post-transplant patients. They have free access to our outpatient clinic. But we are in a difficult situation, and I must say more on the lung transplant side than on the heart transplant side, <clears throat> where very desperate young patients will most likely die on the waiting list because they don't get transplantation. And we have just restarted an internal discussion again today. I'm not sure if it will change anything with regards to the countrywide policy, but it needs to be rediscussed at least as we come to certain milestones. And, and I must say lung transplantation to have stopped it is, is more painful uh, because it sometimes more acutely needs something. And with your advanced infrastructure that you obviously have there at the University of Cape Town, do you foresee any relationships with surrounding countries to be able to help their patients uh, in any way with this crisis from the university? We have. We have. Um, we are also a sort of hub for the Inter-Society Alliance of all big cardiac surgical societies, which uh, formed an umbrella to help uh, countries with just fledgling cardiac surgical programs. So we have uh, intense contacts and um, growing contacts with Mozambique, Zimbabwe, uh, Namibia, Rwanda. But um, these contacts are uh, actually more on the, on the daily non-corona side. They have grown right now. Um, as I said, uh, there is no, no uh, bottleneck on, on the cardiac surgical side yet. We are all sitting and waiting for the storm to come. Understood. And you mentioned the Cardiac Surgery Inter-Society Alliance, as well as the Cape Town Declaration. In your career, you've spent a lot of time highlighting the endemic proportions of rheumatic heart disease. Do you think this pandemic will set back the uh, efforts to identify and address rheumatic heart disease in a meaningful way? I think in the next year or two, we will all have the focus on COVID uh, at the detriment of other diseases. But I'm somehow optimistic that it will have a positive effect retrospectively on healthcare altogether, that societies which were really uh, determined by economic concerns from one day to the next, are rediscovering certain health priorities. 
and therefore become more amenable to the needs also of those who need it most. I agree, a bit of an ethical reckoning to come at the end of this pandemic. Uh, speaking of helping surrounding countries, I wanna shift to the Salam Center and highlight that again, the, the um, purpose really of the Salam Center and the choice for putting it in Sudan was a relationship with the government that would allow patients to come across borders from areas that traditionally had political uh, history without issue to be treated at the Salam Center. Countries like Chad, Ethiopia, Eritrea, etc. Dr. Silvati, uh, there was mention earlier that you stopped any um, transport of patients across borders right now. Was that your decision at the Salam Center or was that something that came from the government or customs? In this moment, uh, is uh, around one month that uh, we cannot uh, accept any more patients from the other country. No, because Salam Center decide because it's closed the border. The commercial flights are not working from uh, Sudan towards the other country and from the other country towards Salam Center towards Sudan. So we cannot uh, accept any more patients till uh, they not start again the commercial flight. In this moment, I have here around 40 patients living in our guest house, coming from Nigeria, Burundi, Chad, Eritrea, Ethiopia, already operated, waiting from two months to have the possibility to go home. And uh, till now they are here. So I'm sorry, but uh, we needed to stop this, uh, this uh, exchange of patients and not because I'm sentenced, but because of the situation, COVID situation. You mentioned the guest house where families from the other countries come to stay with the patients, sometimes for several weeks at a time from all around Africa. What's being done to uh, keep them physically or socially distanced? One of the things I felt was most uh, beautiful at the Salam Center was seeing for instance, a family from Sierra Leone eating with a family from Sudan. It sort of sent a bigger message. Dr. Puntila, what's being done to keep the families safe at this point? Yeah, uh, like again, repeating that uh, for now, there's nobody moving anywhere from the country and, and not to the country. And that's also for the, for the congenital patients. Uh, Congenital patients, they are always, uh, depending a little bit of the age, uh, they are accompanied with the parent or relative. And if the patient is, let's say, 13, 14 years old, uh, uh, they can come as a group and with one, one adult. And, uh, and uh, so, and the COVID-19 outbreak has not changed the, the, let's say, the policy of the parents. They are all let's say in lockdown in our hospital hospital area and uh, for the also security reasons they are not uh, allowed to go go out so they are stuck in the hospital area like alessandro said uh, some some people uh, two months and so so but uh, otherwise they are uh, they are uh, 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 they are having the same uh, precautions uh, 
methods, uh, washing hands and uh, and having mask, using mask, and so so. Uh, but they are like uh, like all of us there, and I, I think uh, they are they are having the same same type of uh, safety manners as uh, as we. Certainly. A question for either of you, is ECMO for COVID a possibility at your center? Uh, the COVID, the ECMO we have device, we already asked before the problem with COVID. So we are waiting because uh, we are doing a lot of surgery with patients with uh, systemic or systemic pulmonary pressure. So about the ECMO, we already discussed and we are waiting. But what I want to say is that we have uh, daily discussion with the, the, our reporter that is uh, on charge received endorsement from uh, the Lombardia, the region in Italy, to treat the COVID patients in Italy. And we spoke about the ECMO. Uh, now, in the last, uh, I don't want to say guidelines, but suggestion is that the ECMO has to be used just in the serious, serious symptomatic patients because the ECMO is giving some inflammatory reaction more and the COVID infection is based on the inflammatory reaction. So the ECMO is, uh, they are looking at, they are, they are going to review this, the use of ECMO. Sure. So they are not using so much anymore like at the beginning because they, are, they realize this one. So this is the reason because, okay, ECMO, we speak about ECMO, but not related to COVID. If I may just comment on that, we, we, ECMO is uh, fully agreed <clears throat> with Dr. Sonati, is a, a last resort. And again, one of the strange sides of the situation in which we all are at the moment, we are the ECMO center for the, for the province, and still the only ECMO patient we got in that direction in the last five weeks was one, was one with influenza. So it's, it's really... Surprising, we all assume this is now COVID, but it was an influenza patient needing ECMO. And uh, none has yet come through again uh, for a COVID ECMO. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to turn to Nigeria, Dr. Falashe. As president of the Association of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgeons of Nigeria, you have an interesting network and meaningful database of all the cardiac surgery going, in, going on in the country. With those channels of communication and your connection with your colleagues, has there been any thought of using your database to measure or follow metrics with COVID? Oh, um, thank you, Emily. Um, the um, Nigerian Center for Disease Control has all the um, statistics and is accumulating data on all those um, metrics. So there hasn't really been a need, but of course as a society, if we need to get involved and we approach, we'd be more than happy to do so, but it hasn't been necessary so far. Okay. And do you think at the completion of this pandemic though, that your database will be a way to uh, see the uh, perhaps decreased progression of cardiac surgery across Nigeria, like we're seeing everywhere else where we have to limit the cases that we're doing? Well, I mean, certainly um, we are uh, accumulating data. And as was said by both um, Peter and um, Alessandro and um, Juha, the case loads have reduced. We're doing mainly only um, emergency cases. 
So what we are going to see is that the numbers are going to kind of drop at the moment. And then once COVID is um, under control and there's now um, elective work, and the numbers will begin to um, ramp up again. Sure. And you, you referenced the African CDC. Have you felt like there have been uh, guidelines that you've used at your center? And then more specifically, which guidelines will you use to make the decision to start doing elective surgery again? There are so many out there. How do you apply those in the real world to your situation? Oh, um, thanks, Emily. Um, in terms of um, surgery or no surgery, the um, current guidelines for us came from our hospital, looking at uh, what was happening in the country and different hospitals, mainly public and private, said it's best to stop um, it's best to stop um, elective surgery. In terms of um, specific guidelines, who to operate on, who not to operate on, I think that's pretty much um, evolving. We're all kind of watching and reading what's happening around the world, looking at various guidelines. And interestingly, you mentioned that there's one I came across recently. It was the um, multi-society roadmap towards restarting elective cases. This was published on the 4th of May. I think there were um, 16 North, um, North um, American societies that came together to bring up some guidelines as to how do you restart elective surgery. And going through it, and this was published in the annals in Jack um, um, last week. So in going through it, one thing I noticed was it has to be a, a collaborative effort between the public health um, individuals and the patients and the um, healthcare providers and it makes mention of um, having PPE across board and testing patients across board, which means everyone you're gonna operate on, you do a test. Look, I'm just reading through it, looking at the um, feasibility, we have limitations. It would be very hard to test every single patient and very hard to provide um, appropriate level of PPE across board. So we're kind of in between at the moment. Um, just today, I've come from another hospital and I asked them what they're doing. And they said, oh, we have started um, elective work. I said, how did you start? He said, we test all patients. We purchased the um, antibody testing kit. So we test patients. And if they're positive, they're going to have a PCR test. But in many other hospitals, um, they're just not doing any um, elective work at all. So it's a bit of a um, conundrum, how to make the um, transition from what we have now, which is trying to put a hold on surgeries because of the risk of infection and knowing that there are people out there who need surgery, so at some point we need to get back towards doing um, elective work. I think we're all struggling with that question together <laughs> around the world. Uh, just as some final thoughts before we address some questions from the audience. We've certainly talked about many potential challenges, but I'd like to introduce the thought that there may be certain features in Africa that position you better actually than where we stood in the US and the UK. For example, PPE is a global uniform concern. The general trend as countries get more industrialized is to re rely on single use disposable items. And we've certainly seen our system fracture and fail under demand. On the contrary, I think countries that are less robust with resources have always been more intentional at repurposing supplies and employing materials like fabric, gowns, drapes, masks, and things that could be safely reused after being laundered. 
Dr. Zilla, as you've become familiar with many developing programs in African countries, do you think that this can represent some type of advantage, at least in the PPE regard? Emily, perhaps. Again, it's too early to say, because as Dr. Zavati said, we had, of course, uh, to train staff much more intensely with uh, um, protection equipment, which is a far cry from what the Chinese had. And uh, that gives, on the one hand, uh, a higher level uh, of uh, alertness. On the other hand, if we compare the actual patient numbers with the number of positive staff, it's a little bit frightening. And uh, not only positive staff, but uh, persons under investigation. And here we have a major problem of needing to wait sometimes for two or three days to get the results. And uh, two thirds of the operating nurses uh, are waiting at home for results. So again, this is something where we will only retrospectively see if it was not still a worse protection than if we had got proper protective equipment. But at the same time, we are all also still in the, in the learning phase of where the vulnerabilities may be with the equipment. Sure. And we talked a little bit about the experience that Africa has with previous epidemics or endemics with things like HIV or TB, et cetera. Dr. Falashe, have you noticed as uh, Dr. Zilla spoke about the community health infrastructure set up from those problems, have you seen that in Lagos or in Nigeria as being a positive oh. dealing with this? Yeah. Um, I'll say most, um, most, most definitely. Um, the most recent was with the um, um, Ebola. And as you know, there was a very good response to the Ebola. It was contained quite well in Nigeria. So I think it was quite easy to build on that existing um, infrastructure, manpower. So the government was able to get to grips quite quickly with um, putting things in place to help to try and control the spread of um, COVID. Um, talking about um, those things as well, I should mention the issue of um, stigmatization. People in Africa, such in Nigeria, I think it's very easy to get them stigmatized. We've seen it with um, HIV, we saw it with um, Ebola, and that's also a rising concern with um, COVID. So one area of concern has been that in terms of um, testing, when uh, testing is now being increased here, um, ramped up, there's increased public awareness. But one area that needs a bit more work is getting people to realize that even if they do think they have problems that might be COVID, please come forward because it's not a death sentence. And I think that's trying to, that's gradually um, getting um, understood. So we need to work on um, not, not, not having people stigmatized. Interesting. Um, Dr. Salvati, we talked about, and Dr. Puntia, we talked about some ways that you gained information from your colleagues in Italy and also from Emergency International and their experience in places like Sierra Leone and Afghanistan. What specifically uh, could you share with us that they prepared you for? Well, uh, uh, emergencies uh, operating also in North Italy strongly. 
which was most hardly hit uh, with the COVID. And there we have uh, had and have possibility to gain experience and uh, knowledge how to protect our staff, patients and hospital structures. And the medical unit coordination of our NGO has outlined protocols, guidelines that were crucial to allow us to continue the clinical activities in all our hospitals. And I think uh, in the more specific, uh, Alessandro, you will maybe tell what this all means. But uh, before I would like to share also with uh, Dr. Zilla that I think we have in Sudan the same strengths uh, effect that the first death in Sudan was already, I think, seven, eight weeks ago. And uh, there has been like a really silent plateau if we compare the situation to uh, to Italy, where the, the spread in the north especially was, was like, uh, like an explosive or anyway, like a really, really aggressive uh, spread. So I don't know, now seems that uh, during last week, uh, uh, in Sudan also has now the curve has like a moved quite uh, rapidly and uh, for sure we are afraid that uh, maybe this has been really like a silent uh, plateau before the explosion but uh, will be I think next uh, couple of weeks will show if uh, how is it how is it going but anyway wanted to share this uh, for me it seems to seems very strange uh, when followed uh, the Italian, Italian spread of uh, virus that uh, it's here, even there for sure, the virus is in the country and quite uh, uh, like a dense populated uh, uh, areas and, and there is still not worse than, than now. Thank you. Just one uh, follow-up question actually from the audience regarding the Salam Center because you've stopped doing surgery uh, from other countries that border Sudan, have you kept any of your ICU beds ready to potentially manage COVID patients in the Salam Center? Uh, we discussed a lot about this one. So uh, I think what uh, you are saying that at the beginning is, uh, okay, we have our ICU 15 bed plus two isolation bed, but is dedicated for a cardiac surgery because in this moment, the staff is staff uh, full specialized for cardiac surgery. Emergency before to decide uh, to start to run a COVID center, we need to have uh, the proper staff. We don't want to do, to do something without uh, staff ready and already trained because it's the uh, emergency what to put in safe position the patients and also the staff. So what we have now is running cardiac surgery and then for the future, we don't know. In the moment the situation will change, we will discuss the activity in some center. In this moment, uh, we want just to, to work with the patients, cardiac surgery patients and not COVID patients. But uh, I want to say also something uh, more what about you are saying. What we learn from Italy is this one for us, that uh, we need to consider all the people positive. I want to repeat to underline this one, independently from the swab. I mean, we don't have time to wait the result of the swab and then to take a different precaution. So I need to consider myself positive even if I didn't take the swab. 
In this way, I protect myself or I protect the people around me. I need to wear the mask, I need to wash my hand. In this way, I protect all the people around me. This emergency want to spread this voice, uh, and I think all of us knows, consider all our, ourselves positive and all the people and staff and patients coming from center always positive. Then if this work is negative, thank you very much. But uh, if, is, uh, if we are waiting just this work, it will become terrible. And this is the reason also because maybe we can discuss about this one that some center is still running with elective surgery, elective urgent surgery. There is a reason because every country has a different uh, situation about the patients. Sudan has a thousand, thousand patients affected from a rheumatic heart disease. And the rheumatic, all the COVID patients are okay related to the age, but related to the collateral disease. And uh, for me, for uh, emergency, for all the staff, we consider urgent more than 50% of the patients that receive the first visit at some center. So I'm sorry that uh, we have just three operating theater uh, full working, but they need 30, I think, operating theater because we have 1,000 patients already near the out of criteria and that there are urgent patients. And this is the reason because we don't say elective urgent. For me, I admit one patient today is already urgent because uh, for the cardiac surgeon or no, if I have a child with 80 millimeter of diastolic diameter, 40 of ejection fraction is, a, is already urgent cases, that one. I cannot wait at the end of the COVID. It's impossible. Just in reference to the terminology, the American College of Surgeons has recommended that we move to uh, terming them uh, time-sensitive, medically necessary procedures so that there's no confusion with what elective means or urgent or, or the implication that operations aren't necessary. Yes. Another question um, from the audience from Brazil for Dr. Zilla. As you said, we've also noticed in Brazil a decrease in emergencies, STEMIs, dissections, et cetera. On the other hand, have you noticed in South Africa an increase of deaths at home for other causes because people are afraid to go to the ER? So we haven't seen any official statistics yet, but the fact that my colleagues from Italy told me exactly the same, my friends from New York told me exactly the same, means that, again, when we have reached the end of this pandemic, we will really start seeing exciting times in the retrospective analysis. And these informations will most likely come out uh, of New York and of Italy rather than of uh, uh, an African country where the statistics are not as accurate uh, as in a, in a high-income country. But uh, right now, we can't say it. We can all only speculate, but it may be a mixed bag of two or three reasons. One may be one that people have a higher threshold, but we would learn about deaths, and that is also something which we will retrospectively see. I think your point earlier is a good wrap-up, which is that this is a global experiment that we're all undergoing together. And I think if one thing we've seen with the pandemic in the U.S. is that the medical community has become smaller, not just in our country, but across countries and across oceans. 
and borders. We've been sharing lessons, hope, and, and knowledge in a way that I haven't seen before. So I hope that we can continue to do that to tackle this common enemy together. And uh, I want to thank you all for being here today. It's been a great session. I want to thank our live audience and also um, some people from CTSNet, um, Jessica Luke, who manned the Twitter feed, and uh, Catherine Joyce at STS, and Emily Robinson and Jasmine Blanche. Thank you all today for joining me. It's been a fantastic session, and I hope we keep these channels of communication open. Thank you for listening to CTSNet to go your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.